You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It's so unfair. The way he gets treated by the Democrats, by the media, by debate moderators and microorganisms. So unfair. Donald Trump has COVID-19, apparently referring to the pandemic in the past tense, which they did at the Republican National Convention in August, does not confer immunity on the president. So Donald Trump has COVID-19, but it wasn't his fault because nothing ever is. I don't know who started it, uh, but when you read his tweets, say mommy in a whiny voice first, like adding in bed to the end of a fortune cookie. You have exceptional focus and drive in bed or anal before the brand name of the RVs you see on highways, anal pathfinder, anal expedition, anal jamboree, adding a whiny mommy to the start of every Trump tweet makes them more bearable. Mommy, now the fake news media is reporting that I wanted my daughter Ivanka to run with me as vice president in 2015. Wrong. Totally ridiculous. Mommy, one of the worst polls in 2016 was the Fox News poll. They said they were going to change pollsters and they didn't. Mommy, liberate Michigan. Anyway, back to the president and his diagnosis. Donald Trump wants us to know it's not his fault. It wasn't his fault that he caught COVID-19 and very likely spread this deadly virus, knowingly spread this deadly virus, to dozens of other people, including Melania Trump and Kellyanne Conway and Chris Christie and the chair of the Republican National Committee and Trump's 2020 campaign manager and a room packed full of wealthy Trump donors at his New Jersey golf course and three Republican senators And as I sit here recording, the news just broke that Kaylee McKenney, White House press secretary, has just tested positive for COVID-19. Oh, man, I am running out of tiny little candles to light. The people Trump exposed to COVID between the time he learned he'd tested positive for the virus, a list that may include Joe Biden, who's not out of the woods yet. The people Trump exposed to the virus may have already exposed hundreds or even thousands of other people to this deadly virus. HIV-positive gay men went to prison in the 90s and aughts for failing to disclose their HIV infections to sex partners. Some even used condoms, had protected sex with other men, but didn't disclose they were HIV-positive and were prosecuted. Laws that criminalized HIV transmission or HIV exposure were pushed by Republicans and like most conservative policies concerning sex, they backfired. These laws incentivize not knowing your HIV status because you couldn't be prosecuted for putting someone at risk if you didn't know you had the virus. So these laws led to more infections. Of course, I'm not suggesting that the president be jailed. Not for this. I'm just saying. All right, back to Trump and his COVID diagnosis. Trump would have us believe it wasn't his refusal to wear a mask or his insistence that COVID-19 was a hoax or the large indoor rallies he insisted on holding during a pandemic, RIP Herman Cain, or his failure to enforce social distancing at the Rose Garden Massacre, the packed event where Trump introduced his Supreme Court nominee. It wasn't all that. It wasn't any of that that got his ass infected. It was a woman. Mommy, it's Hope Hicks' fault. And how did the senior advisor to the president get it? Well, we have tape 
of Trump talking about it with Sean Hannity, but we're not going to make you listen to his voice. I will spare you that. Instead, I will read from the transcript. Trump, who already knows he's infected but just lied to Hannity and says he's still waiting on his test results, Trump tells Hannity how he thinks he got it. And he thinks he got it from hope. And here's how Trump thinks hope got it. It's very hard. I can't do a Trump voice. It's very hard when you're with soldiers, when you're with airmen, when you're with Marines and police officers and the police officers. I'm with them so much. And when they come over to you, it's very hard to say, stay back. It's kind of a tough situation. They want to hug you and they want to kiss you because we have really done a good job for them. And you get close and things happen. Hope is a very warm person with them. And she she knows there was a risk. That's where his mind went. That's where his mind goes. In Trump's head, in Trump's fantasy world, and we are all forced to live in Trump's fantasy world right now, Hope Hicks hooked up with every soldier, airman, marine, and cop that wanted to, quote-unquote, thank him. So it's not just Jerry Falwell Jr. Conservatives, man, they are all cucks. Not that there's anything wrong with being a cuck. I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with being a cuck. But conservatives think there's something wrong with being a cuck. It's why they use it as an insult. It's why they accuse liberals and progressives of being cucks. Justin Leigh Miller, Dr. Justin Leigh Miller, frequent guest here on the Savage Lovecast, sex researcher. He wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post about conservatives and cuckolding after the Jerry Falwell Jr. story broke. Heterosexual men who identified as Republicans were the most likely to report having a cuckolding fantasy. Nearly two-thirds, 64 percent of heterosexual Republican men reported having had this fantasy and 30 percent said it is a frequent fantasy. So it's telling, right? When Trump realizes he has COVID-19 and has to come up with an excuse, an explanation, has to blame someone, he starts fantasizing about this woman, one of his women, having sex with other men, dozens of other men, Republicans, man. Now, liberals, for our part, we're likelier to fantasize about power imbalances, power imbalances being a liberal taboo than we are to fantasize about infidelities, which are a conservative taboo. Yet they hurl the cuck insult at liberals and progressives because, of course, they do. Because Republicans, they project. Trump projects constantly. Whatever he's doing, whatever he's guilty of doing, like trying to rig the election or being Vladimir Putin's puppet, he accuses Democrats of doing. Which brings us in a really roundabout way from Trump's COVID diagnosis to Hope Hicks's inability to turn down a Marine to QAnon of all things, the right-wing conspiracy theory that's currently eating what's left of Republicans' brains. QAnuts believe a cabal of progressive child-raping cannibals run the world and Donald Trump is going to bring down that child-raping cannibal cabal and save the children. And children right now kind of really do need saving. We are failing to protect our children. That is the grain of truth at the heart of this insane conspiracy theory. We are failing to protect our children from poverty, from homelessness, from dirty air and dirty water, from climate change. We are failing to protect them from fires and hurricanes and rising seas. And conservatives are responsible for those failures, not just complicit in them, but the authors of them. Conservative politicians and conservative policies and the people who vote for conservatives are harming our children. They know what they're doing, and it's breaking their brains, and the evidence is all over social media. 
these conservatives, to protect themselves from the realization of what they're doing, they concoct a conspiracy theory about cannibal pedophile Democrats eating children and project the harm being done onto children by them onto liberal progressive cannibal pedophiles. All this craziness to distract themselves from the real threat to children, them. Them and their idiot president, a man too stupid to protect himself and too narcissistic to care about protecting anyone else. A man who, when confronted with his own mortality, can only think about one thing. Hope Hicks making out with a Marine. Oh, and backing way up, speaking of Chris Christie, Republican, former governor of New Jersey, now hospitalized with COVID-19 after spending an unmasked week in a conference room with Donald Trump and Hope Hicks before the first and possibly only presidential debate. Chris Christie said we would have to accept more deaths in order to reopen the economy. Like all Republicans, he didn't mean his own death. He meant yours. Light a little candle. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining me on the Magnum, we've got a What You Got with Dr. Raphael Landovitz about the promise of an injectable version of PrEP. All that coming up on today's show. Hi there. I'm a 30-year-old pansexual female living on the East Coast, and I really messed up. I have a coworker that I work closely with on projects, and we just work a lot together. And ever since we started working together, we really hit it off, and we get along super well. I've had a crush on her since I've met her, but I never want to tell her, and I'm perfectly happy with not doing anything about it because, you know, I don't want to ruin our friendship or anything that we have. So last night I have a couple glasses of wine and I'm texting back and forth with one of my guy friends. And I start telling him all about her and I'm like, she's super gorgeous and she's super smart and I have such a huge crush on her. And then I realized that I sent the messages to her. Her response wasn't terrible. It was something along the lines of don't know what to say, but I can't stop smiling. But I totally freaked out, and I just started apologizing profusely and trying to explain myself, and it just kind of ended on an awkward note where she was like, okay, maybe you should go to bed, otherwise I'll start taking your words at face value, and I'm just so mortified right now. She's on vacation this week, but after that, we're working even more together, and I feel like I can't even face her. And I don't even know what to do. Can you tell me how to behave? Calm the fuck down. You slipped up. You sent a text to this woman that you meant to send to someone else. And she now knows horror of horrors that you, her coworker, which is a little complicated, sometimes problematic, particularly if there's a power differential, but you, her coworker, have a crush on her. And how she initially responded before you began to flagellate yourself with so much effort that you made her feel uncomfortable and awkward, her first response was, don't know what to say, but I can't stop smiling. That means at the very least, she wasn't offended. She may even be open to exploring with you whether there's a connection there. Don't know what to say, but I can't stop smiling. Now, maybe she's smiling at your discomfort. Maybe she's just smiling at, you know, the, the torrent of compliments that weren't meant for her eyes but were about her. And she, you know, 
was, it was a nice ego stroke for her, but she's not interested. Well, that's to be determined whether she's interested or not, whether she reciprocates, whether she feels about you the same way that you feel about her. And that's the conversation you're going to have and you're going to kind of have to have when you see each other at work again, where you could say something like, look, I have a crush on you and obviously if you don't have one on me and aren't interested in me that way, I, I won't mention it again, at least to you. I might have to process my embarrassment and sadness with a friend. But I'm a grown-up. Tell her you're a grown-up because you are a grown-up. And I know that all crushes aren't requited and I can be friendly and professional while I wait for my crush to burn off, to pass, which it will. Not because you aren't awesome and crush-worthy but I know it's on me to redirect my romantic attentions elsewhere if you're not interested and I will will myself to see you as a colleague and a friend and treat you that way even if you are a colleague and a friend that right now I have kind of a crush on. But one day I'll be able to say I used to have a crush on you and we can laugh about it then if we're not dating, which again would be my first preference and then see what she says. Give her the out. Invite her to hit you with – the no. I, I'm not interested. I was flattered. The compliments made me smile. I tried to make you feel better about it and not feel so embarrassed or mortified. And, you know, maybe I did that thing that women often do when they, you know, are asked out by someone they're not interested in and she was deflecting your attention gently and not shutting you down for fear of hurting your feelings. But because you've invited the no, she's going to shut you down if she needs to. And if she does, well, then you – Take it elsewhere. You find somebody else to have a crush on. You wait for your crush on her to pass. And there's something about clear and unambiguous rejection that can speed along the process of a crush passing. If she's not interested and she makes that clear to you, I think you'll be out of the crush stage on her pretty quickly. But who knows? You may have – lucked into a situation where she didn't see you that way before but maybe thinking about you that way now, maybe interested in dating you, this could be a story that you get to tell at your wedding and to your kids or this could be a story you just get to tell to your sex and relationship advice podcast host and a couple of close friends as you work through the mortification and grief if she doesn't feel the same way about you that you feel about her. But we can't know that yet. She might feel the same way or be open to at least exploring something with you and whether feelings are something that she could develop for you. And you'll find that all out when you see her at work and you make your apologies again but hopefully more succinctly than you did when you were burying her in I'm so sorry texts and you invite the no. And then if you get the yes, Yahtzee. Hi, Dan. I have a problem that only exists because COVID exists. Essentially, I have this employee that has been with us since June. He moved to the southeast to our farm to only to work with us. He's really fucking great. We love him a lot. At the farm is my partner, myself, and the employee. He lives on the farm in a separate house, but we still see him basically every day. We have pretty much potted up because of COVID, like we're exposed to each other. But outside of that, we are always masked. And my partner and I have been uh, really serious about quarantine and safety, uh, partly because our business relies on us not being sick. Even if we we're asymptomatic, like just responsibly, we would have to completely shut down 
until we all tested negative, which wouldn't destroy our business, but would be pretty shitty. Uh, and then also I am immunocompromised. I have a autoimmune disorder and I try not to think about that on the day to day, but like lately have been the problem comes that like my employee obviously moved here without knowing really anyone. He is super responsible and I know pretty nervous, but we never had like a talk because I didn't think it was necessary and it's really none of my fucking business what he does outside of work. But he started dating someone and I don't think he knows that the person he's dating is also dating other people. Basically, he somehow started dating the most popular gay boy in town and this man is also seeing his long-term ex. Um, I only know this because of Instagram. It's all super high school. Normally, I just wouldn't say anything because it's none of my fucking business. The reason why it's my business is because it literally is potentially going to affect my business. Because it seems like this boy is a potential vector. And I know they're being safe when they're together. But I don't know if the man he's seeing is being safe when they're not together. And I know that's just like the risk that you take. And it's not my fucking business again, but like, I don't think he knows. And I don't want to get COVID. You're a little all over the place. You're pivoting between it's none of my fucking business, but it is my fucking business. And I can't tell my employee what to do or who to see on his own time. But that's exactly what you want to do. You want to tell him who he can and can't see on his own fucking time because of the risk, the risk to your business, the risk to your health if he gets exposed to COVID and brings it to the farm. You say that you guys have pretty much locked down, that you've isolated yourself on your farm and until your new employee who moved to town to work for you began to meet people in the area where you live, he was pretty much locked down with you guys. You didn't tell him that it was a condition of his employment for the duration of the pandemic that he remained locked down, remain isolated and only see you two. So there's a conversation you need to have with him now about your expectations and about what is. He lives in a different house. You're doing farm work. You're not in a closed room together. I assume that when you're doing farm work, you're outside. I assume that if you're doing farm work outside or he's doing farm work for you outside, it wouldn't be that hard to maintain at least six feet of distance, if not a great deal more distance. And you could negotiate all that. You can make that all clear. If he's been popping into your house for breakfast in the morning, well, you can't do that anymore because he's seeing someone now and he is being exposed to this person who – and you know what you know and you can't not know what you do know – is not being as safe or careful as you guys are being. And to protect your business and to protect your health because you're immunocompromised, you guys have to err on the side of more safety. But in the end, considering that you don't share a home and that you can institute a, a stricter regimen of social isolation, social distancing from your employee on the farm, it's not office work. You're not next to each other in a single cubicle that maybe there's accommodations that can be made here to address what is, in your circumstance, a low-probability, high-consequence event. There's a very low probability, even if he is exposed to COVID, 
that living in his own house and doing farm work for you at a distance is going to expose you to COVID as well. But it's a high consequence event if he should expose you to COVID. So what degree of risk are you comfortable shouldering here? I think it is a reasonable degree of risk to say to him, can't come in the house and we can't get within 12 feet of each other while you're seeing this guy who – and you know what you know. I've seen this guy's Instagram. He's seeing other people and his Instagram gives the impression that he isn't being as cautious or safe as we have been so far during the pandemic. So no more breakfasts at our place and no more hugs or high fives in the morning or whatever you've been doing with him that brought you – into close proximity. But, you know, as the pandemic continues to rage and rage, as we go into a second wave or a third wave, depending on how you count or measure waves, partnered people can't ask single people to never see anyone, to, to, to not seek out sex or intimacy or companionship. You get that at home from your husband or boyfriend that you live with. Your employee needs that in his life too. He needs to be as safe as he possibly can be, responsible for his own choices and aware of the higher degree of risk that you're at as an immunocompromised person should you get exposed and then do everything he can if he's going to remain in your employ to make sure that if he does get exposed by this guy or by some other social contact that he has when he's off the farm, that there's no chance or as little a chance as possible that he might expose you risking your health and risking the health of your business as well. And if doing all of that, you come to the conclusion that the risk to you is still too great and that preys on your mind, then you're going to have to fire him and perhaps hire a new employee with the explicit understanding that they don't leave the farm, that they don't see anyone else. And if they don't have a lover in their life that they arrive with who moves onto the farm with them and never leaves the farm with them just as they're never allowed to leave the farm, they're not allowed to have sex. They're not allowed to, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend for the duration of this pandemic. Seems like an unreasonable ask of an employee by an employer because it is an unreasonable ask. So I would encourage you – to do what you can to retroactively renegotiate your relationship with this employee so that you are safe and your business is safe and he is allowed to continue to see this guy if that's what he chooses to do. Hi, Dan Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a late 20-something married bi woman living in the West Coast, and I have a question about monogamish relationships, don't ask, don't tell, and sexuality. So I've been with my partner for going on about seven years, married for about one, and we've known each other for about maybe 15 years prior to that. And uh, over time, as we've been together, I don't know if it's age, birth control, natural hormonal fluctuations, uh, mental health, whatever, I've just found myself generally less and less interested in sex. I'm not to the point of being a major issue in the relationship. I think we still have sex often enough to um, maintain our intimacy, um, but he has a very high libido and his love language is touch. And I get very kind of overwhelmed with his needs and we found something that works for us. But we recently had a conversation about um, 
it kind of came up in a joking way about um, getting his dick sucked and how that's something that I don't consider to be, you know, as intimate of an action. And also I'm a little bit interested in dating women or and experimenting with women, you know, typical married by late 20-something. Um, and either which way, the idea of him finding a gay guy who likes to suck straight dick, which I know exists, and engaging in this activity completely consensually, of course, and whether or not, you know, I would be okay with that, which I said absolutely 100%. All of this to say, we had kind of a don't ask, don't tell type conversation where I basically said, if you're safe and I don't know about it, I would feel more comfortable with that. Um, and if it ever progressed to more than just oral, you know, I would want to know. So I picked up his phone thinking it was mine because we have very, very similar phones um, late night. And I saw um, a notification for Grindr. Um, I did not open his phone. I did not look at it. The whole point of don't ask, don't tell is also don't snoop. But I can't stop thinking about it. And part of the entire arrangement was essentially, if this is something you want to do, here are my parameters. Go forth and have fun. Um, but seeing that notification just... It kind of put into a new light the idea of my romantic and sexual partner having a sexual relationship that doesn't include me, and I think I feel a little bit differently about it now than I had when I had first agreed to the terms. This doesn't mean I'm no longer okay with it. I just, now that I've seen that notification, I can't see myself not asking about it or ultimately snooping out of that, you know, sort of burning curiosity. Um, I feel like I've heard you kind of talk about the dangers of don't ask, don't tell in similar stories in the past. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, once you have started down that road and you've agreed to something, I don't know, I'm just curious about your thoughts and or your listeners' thoughts and, you know, about kind of how to go from here. I know the short answer is talk to him about it because obviously it's bothering me enough to call the show. But I'm kind of wondering just more generally about monogamish relationships, don't ask, don't tell, and kind of fluid sexuality. So you're interested in exploring your bisexuality and your husband, his first response, the idea that pops into his head first when the problem of whether he's ever going to get his dick sucked again is to find gay guys to suck his dick. He's not the one who's interested in exploring his bisexuality. Hmm, that just made me go, hmm, if that's where he went first, maybe he's also a little bit more sexually open or perhaps a little bit bi or, you know, maybe he's one of those straight guys who can lean back, close his eyes, think about girls or watch straight porn on his phone while a gay dude sucks his dick and he's so not homophobic and so secure in his own heterosexuality that he can just use – a male human being, as a kind of fleshlight. Those guys are definitely out there. They used to be all over Craigslist back in the day. Now they're on Grinder, looking for those gay guys who indeed are also out there who like to suck off straight guys. All right, that's not, that's not your question though. I'm um, addressing what I find particularly compelling here, I guess, first – DADT, monogamous relationships, yeah, often DADT is an unhappy compromise. Often a don't ask, don't tell arrangement is a terse, tense concession 
to an unhappy reality. Like we're not able to meet each other's needs or I'm not able to meet your needs or I'm not particularly sexual anymore. I don't see you in an erotic capacity anymore and yet we're still together and we want to stay together for other reasons. Uh, I wish that you could just shut down sexually alongside me. Not that I'm saying that you're shutting down sexually, caller. I'm giving an example of often where a DADT arrangement or agreement um, arises from which is a truce. Like, okay, you have to have sex in your life and I don't want to do it or I don't want to do that particular thing and I'm sick of you badgering me about it. So go do that somewhere else with someone else. But I don't want to know. Don't – I'm not going to ask you any questions but you're not going to tell me either. And telling isn't just verbal. It's not just shut up. It's also don't leave clues lying around. Don't leave – Incriminating emails open where I am going to see them without snooping. Don't get grinder notifications on your phone because those are all tells. Now, you say after seeing that grinder notification on his phone that you have a burning curiosity about what it is that he's up to. It's interesting. I think it's telling that you don't say that you're angry or that you're jealous or that you're rethinking this arrangement, him seeking blowjobs elsewhere outside the relationship, you're just curious. Now, it could be that in your negotiations around DADT, you defaulted to DADT a little too quickly and what you would prefer and perhaps be more comfortable with is being told what's going on because you would rather know than not know. Sometimes it's possible that it's arousing to know that your partner is out there getting it on with other people. Have you guys talked about that? When you say you're interested in exploring relationships or sex with other women, does he have a completely neutral reaction to that or does that arouse him? Does the thought of him getting a blowjob from some other guy safely arouse you? That's a whole different conversation. If you DADT'd it because that felt like the path of least resistance or the most advisable thing to sidestep jealousy and what you've discovered after you saw that grinder notification was that you may feel more comfortable being told, that you may actually find something exciting about being told, well then, yeah, go talk to him. Have the conversation again. Unpack your reaction to that grinder notification and in that conversation, you can work out with him what it means and how that might impact or alter your agreement about him seeking sex outside the relationship at the same time that you're seeking sex outside the relationship. Him getting it from gay dudes who just want to suck his dick, you getting with women. You didn't make an issue of this but I'm going to make an issue of this. You say you're in your late 20s and you've been together for 15 years. So you were sophomores in high school, juniors in high school. When you came together, it sounds like you have a loving, low-conflict relationship. Maybe you've become so familiar to one another that – and you've been together for such a long time and from such a young age that you're suffering from a little siblingification of the relationship where he's – you know, still a a loving figure in your life and an important figure in your life and you have an intimate relationship with him but he has been in your eyes and perhaps you to some extent in his eyes have become deroticized. Sometimes opening up a relationship and seeing your partner through someone else's eyes can re-eroticize your partner. When your partner is with someone else, that 
affirms their desirability. And sometimes we – if we're in a very long-term relationship, having our partner's desirability affirmed by strangers, by somebody else – and that can just mean going out dancing with our partner and seeing them dance with somebody else or seeing somebody else, you know, eye-fucking your partner from across the room. Then you look at your partner and go, yeah, hot. And then you're all over your partner again. For people in open relationships, you know, sometimes you open a relationship because there's no sex in the relationship and it feels like the sex has collapsed. And you open the relationship and suddenly these two people who weren't having sex with each other now with the freedom to have sex with other people are suddenly having sex with each other in the wake of having sex with other people. But there is something about opening up a relationship where the sex is absent, uh, where it's evaporated or it's waning that can bring the sex back, that can re-eroticize these two people in each other's eyes. Maybe that's what you want here. Maybe that's why you want to have this conversation with your husband about his grinder account. Maybe you would like to see his grinder account and hear about his grinder dates before they happen and after they happen. And who knows? He might have a couple of grinder dates with guys who would be comfortable with him sending you a little video as it happens. Hi, Dan. West Coast Canadian guy here. I went on a couple dates with a woman that I really liked uh, about a year and a half ago. And at the time, she had, you know, openly and honestly told me that she was uh, seeing someone else. And both of us at the time were exploring the idea of a poly connection. Anyway, she, after a couple dates, which were both great, awesome dates, she told me that she decided to pursue the other connection exclusively and didn't have the, the capacity or energy for something open, which is fine. You know, I was hurt. I really liked her, but I moved on. Anyway, a text came out of the blue to me in early August, and this woman said that she saw me on a dating app and thought I was a total babe and wanted to reconnect with me. So we had a beach date together and it was really great. And it felt like we were just old friends sort of reconnecting. And, you know, given that it was her being the initiator, she was the one that reached out. I was, you know, willing to explore it and see where it went. And we both expressed a mutual desire for an open poly connection and to explore our sexuality and, you know, try threesomes and so on and so forth. I was a bit wary because, you know, knowing uh, that she also has a child, by the way. So knowing that she's a busy single mom who had a history of, you know, ending things in a poly exploratory dynamic, I'm worried that that could happen again. And I'm worried if I'm being too open by wanting to reconnect with this genuinely nice and caring and thoughtful human being. We had plans to watch your Hump Film Festival this coming Saturday. Thank you. But she told me that she's got way too much on her plate right now, and she's super busy and won't be able to hang out with me on Saturday. She's wanting to postpone for a couple weeks from now where I would be her second option to an event she was going to attend you know, which to be fair, she's had eyes on, I think, for a few months or a couple months at least. So that's that's totally fair. This event she's been wanting to go to and would be excited about for a couple months would be her priority. But it's the openness, it's the open endedness, it's the it's the lack of clarity about where things are gonna go and how much time she's gonna have for me. 
So, you know, this is a common theme for me. I seem to date these really busy women that don't have time for me. They give me scraps. They give me pieces. I have to chase after them. And, you know, I like a little bit of a playful chase, but I don't like never having availability or being someone's second thought or, you know, having plans cancel or change on me or, you know, flaky people. They're all great women, but it seems to be a common theme with with the with these three women, you know, with three women in particular that I've connected with over the last six months. They're all too busy and I get scraps and pieces of their time, even though I really like them and they're all genuinely awesome, thoughtful, caring, intelligent women. What would you suggest I do here? I would suggest that you adjust your expectations. You've met three women over the last six months who weren't as available to you as you would have liked them to be based on how awesome you thought they were. It could be the case that you just got unlucky and were drawn to and three women were also drawn to you in return, drawn to three women in a row who just didn't have the time for a relationship right now and couldn't prioritize you the way you were willing and able to prioritize them. Also possible that you were drawn to three really kind of great, amazing women and they were kind to you. They gave you a chance. They, they considered you but they weren't as drawn to you and you thinking they're awesome doesn't obligate them to make themselves more available to you than they would like to. As painful as that is and that is painful but that's fucking dating, man. You – ask people out or you pick people up or you swipe left or right on people and you go out and you get a good feeling for them and you get your hopes up and then it, it, the feeling isn't reciprocated. They're not as into you as you're into them and you go through that process again and 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 again, sometimes for years, not months, before you find someone or you match with someone who is as crazy about you as you are about them and as willing to make themselves as available to you as you're willing to make yourself available to them. And you just have to keep at it. And it sucks, I know, and it's painful, I know, because rejection is always painful even if it's a soft rejection, even if it's more of a deflection than a rejection, even if – and sometimes it can be cruel for someone to give you scraps like you say, that they're willing to see you a little bit here and there and it's clearly conditional and perhaps provisional that they're, you know, for lack of anyone else to see right now, they're willing to see you but obviously they're not passionate about you. Otherwise, they would be making you their priority. And you haven't met a woman who's at least in the last six months who wanted to make you their priority and the way you're wanting to make them yours. So what do you do? Well, you don't write off all women. I don't think all women on the west coast of Canada are too busy or too poly or too stressed out to seriously date someone and really engage with someone. You just haven't run into that woman yet, gone on a date with that woman yet. You also might want to ask yourself if you're not scaring these women off because three women in six months and you got to the point with each one of them where you determined that they weren't as willing to make themselves available to you as you were 
to make yourself available to them, were you coming at them too hard? Were you sending off this signal that dating you is going to be intense and they were either going to have to go all in or they're going to have to pull way back? Because sometimes when somebody is really coming at you and you barely know them, that's a red flag and people will pull back. That there's something about dating at the start where people want some ease, where they want it to be a little breezy so that if they decide after seeing you a few times that you're not the right person for them, you haven't insisted that they make you know, some sort of premature commitment to you or demonstrate to you that they're passionate about you or really interested in, you know, seeing you all the time and anytime that you want to see them. So slow your roll, adjust your expectations, put things in perspective, talk to your partnered friends about all the relationships that they had with people who dumped them or that they had to dump who weren't into them or that they weren't into before they found the person that they're with now and – Keep at it. Keep putting your hand on that stove. That's all you can do if you're single and would rather be partnered. That's all you can do is keep at it until you find someone. But be critical enough to, to look at your own actions because if you keep getting the same response from different women, all these different amazing women, the same response, there may be something you're doing, some scent you're giving off that is repelling them. Maybe you could ask for a little feedback from a girlfriend from long ago that you still have a good relationship with. If you have friends that you can game out what you've been doing and what hasn't been working and you give them permission to be critical and promise them you will not get angry if their criticisms cut you or are harsh, you may be able to adjust. You're not going to be able to become an entirely different person. You're still going to want what you want and you should still put that out there and ask for what you want. But maybe you could slow your roll a little bit. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a bi female living on the East Coast. I've had some problems recently communicating with partners about my particular body and how it works. I have vaginismus, meaning I have voluntary muscle spasms in my vaginal canal and penetrative sex is painful, if not impossible, most of the time. This has impacted my relationships with both male and female partners. I also don't come from oral sex. When I masturbate, I masturbate face down, muscles clenched, pillow hump of fashion with a vibrator, which makes me feel not very sexy and it's not something that I super enjoy doing with a partner. Basically, I often find myself in situations where my sexual partner is upset that they can't make me come, even though, having listened to your show for years, I understand that sex is a larger experience than just an orgasm, and I'm very vocal and open about how much I enjoy sex and the limitations that my body has. I also don't like looking at it as limitations and challenges, but that's what it definitely has been. I'm currently seeing a new guy who is awesome and wonderful and empathetic, and our sex is a much broader definition than just penis and vagina, but it's still definitely a problem that I can't come in pretty much any form with him. Not only does he feel bad about me not being able to come, there's now an added layer of guilt because I've expressed how other partners have put a lot of pressure on me in the, in the past. What do you think is the best way to begin to not feel so afraid about having this conversation in the future or overwhelmed about talking about it with new partners? I find the thought of having these conversations and, and very emotional situations in every single relationship in my future very overwhelming. If you had any thoughts, it would honestly just be helpful to hear from other people who've experienced similar situations because there isn't much about it on the internet. 
penis and vagina sex comes pretty standard. And so does the thought that everyone's going to get off from oral. How do I help myself not feel bad about my body and communicate better with my partners moving forward? I hope you've seen a pelvic floor specialist. Vaginismus, which is not an easy word for me to pronounce, it can be treated uh, usually with success, but not in all cases. I'm just going to assume that you have sought treatment and it didn't work and you've reconciled yourself to the way your body works and you're taking real pleasure in all the non-PIV sex acts out there and non-oral sex acts that you can enjoy, which are real sex and not consolation prizes. But what do you do about your partner's expectations, new partner's expectations going into sex and what you got to do to protect yourself uh, from, you know, reactions that they might have in the moment to, you know, being invested in your pleasure, wanting to see you come, wanting to make you come or their egos getting wrapped up in that is you just have to be brutally frank and brutally honest and set their expectations before you have sex for the first time. You need to say to them, look, I don't come during partnered sex and using the broadest definition of sex there, you know, because of my physical condition, because of the vaginismus, I'm not able to have PIV. There's all these other great things we can do and we're looking forward to doing and we've already probably talked about that. Um, but you need to know that being pressured or guilted about coming or not coming ruins sex for me and everything I do enjoy about sex. It, it is very intimate and very tactile and I love it and I enjoy it and then make them promise that they're not going to feel bad, that they're not going to make it about them when you can't come during partnered sex in the way that they have grown accustomed to other partners coming during partnered sex or you know, the sign that they get from other partners, the affirmation of the orgasm that I really enjoyed this. Here's my orgasm. Here's the proof. They're not going to get that from you. And if they know that going in and they know that to be a good partner to you, they can't have a shit fit about that, make you feel bad about that, suddenly guilt trip you about that, suddenly claim in the moment that they are going to be able to do what no one else has ever been able to do for you and put pressure on you that way, they're less likely to engage in all those shitty behaviors that make you feel bad because they will have already committed. They will already have promised you before going into sex that they won't do those things. That doesn't mean that one or two of them or some of them might not still do those shitty things that make you feel bad in the moment. But you're less likely to get that kind of shitty behavior if the people who want to have sex with you know going in that they shouldn't do those sorts of things. And they know going in that even in the absence of an orgasm during the sexual encounter that you loved it and you enjoyed it and you get off on – getting them off and you love the skin-to-skin -skin contact and all the sex acts and you know how it gets your blood flowing, that all of that works for you and you want all of that and they're going to give you all of that. And then an orgasm, orgasms are something that you give yourself in a very specific way and during solo play. All that said, I really want to challenge you to revisit not the way you come. You know your body. You live in your body. If this is what works and you've you know, sought treatment for the vaginismus and you've experimented with other positions uh, and it's this or nothing, I respect that. But I want to challenge your feelings of shame about it and the idea that you can incorporate what works for you even if it's something very specific into partnered 
sex. You know, I want to share a story uh, of my own. I had a, you know, this guy I saw for a, a few months, many, many, many years ago, who couldn't come during anal intercourse, couldn't come from getting a blowjob, couldn't come even from a hand job. He came in a very specific way, in a very specific position, face down on a mattress, humping the bed and tensing his legs. It sounds slightly similar to what you described, no pillow, no vibrator, but he had to be in a certain position and tense his body in a certain way or he couldn't climax. And it was one of my earliest exposures to someone with a, a guy, not with vaginismus, but with death grip syndrome. He sort of trained his body and hadn't invested the time in challenging his body to see if he might be able to come in some different way. And he felt really guilty and terrible about it. And felt like he wasn't allowed to come in my presence if he could only come this way. And so when he finally confessed to me what was going on, you know, why he couldn't come with me, which made me feel awkward because, you know, I was invested in his pleasure and I felt like as a good sex partner, I should, you know, if he's not coming, is there something I'm doing wrong? Is there something I could do better? Is something I could do differently? Is there something he wants to do that we're not doing? So I was full of questions. And when he finally confessed to me, and said he was too embarrassed to do this in front of me or anyone. I told him he didn't need to be embarrassed. I told him he could do this with me and in front of me. And so he would. He started. And, you know, we would have the crazy sex I enjoyed. I would get off. And then he would do this. And then one day – sorry, this is a long story of grandpa having sex. But you're all going to have to listen. One day when he got into the position, I sat on his lower back adding pressure – you know, and that was what he liked. You know, he liked to push down. And I leaned forward under him to play with his tits and I whispered filthy shit in his ear about what a dirty pervert he was. Not a defective pervert. That that wasn't the point. He was just a dirty pervert. That was the kind of dirty talk he liked. It's not the dirty talk everybody likes. You swap in whatever works for you there. But caller, is there a way that you could be held, be talked to, be touched while you're with that pillow, with that vibrator, in that position that gets you to climax? Is there a way that a loving partner who doesn't feel threatened by not being the pillow or not being the vibrator could be incorporated into that and enhance that experience for you? Kind of in the way – sorry to pat myself on the back here – kind of in the way I enhanced the experience for that guy I dated so many years ago and made him feel – a little bit I, – I think no, – I don't think he told me. It made him feel more whole sexually, W-H-O-L-E, sexually because although he needed this very specific thing, this very specific position, this very specific tension to come, he was coming with me. I was helping. I was enhancing. And really, isn't that all anybody does for a sex partner? You know, we get them off but in a sense, their bodies are – taking pleasure from our bodies and they are getting themselves off with us. We are there enhancing their pleasure. So caller, have those conversations with your partners. Get them to pledge in advance of sex that they're not going to make an issue of this. Make sure they understand that it will upset you if they make an issue of it. Make sure they understand that you enjoy sex even if you don't have an orgasm. And then if you get closer and you get a good feeling about somebody and you want to – Share this with them. Bring them into it. And if you don't want to be looked at while you're doing it, if you're self-conscious, make them close their eyes. Turn the lights off. Make them put a blindfold on. But let somebody else be there for you. See what it does to these orgasms that you are capable of having. 
if there is another human being there with you when it happens. It might be transformative. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got segment, Dr. Raphael Landovitz, professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and co-director of the UCLA Center for, pardon me, and co-director of the UCLA Center for Clinical AIDS Research and Education. Hey, Dr. Landovitz, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for uh, for calling. It's good to talk to you. Uh, thank you for agreeing to jump on the phone. So what do you got? <laughs> um, what, what we have um, are the primary results of a new HIV prevention study. Um, uh, you might have heard that um, in 2010, there were some results published that introduced uh, some results of a, a, a tablet medication that people could take every day that was highly effective at uh, preventing HIV infection in people who are at risk. And it worked in many different routes of exposure uh, and uh, really was transformative for the HIV prevention field. It received U.S. FDA approval for use uh, for HIV prevention in 2012 and has been um, progressively scaled up in the United States and across the world uh, since then. But the challenge is you, you need to take a pill every day or at least with some regularity, depending on the situation to have that protection. And and sometimes it's hard to remember to take a pill every day. I think we all have gotten prescriptions from from doctors and, you know, it's hard to follow those instructions. People have other priorities. Sometimes medications become unaffordable. That pill, we, we call that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's the sort of That's exactly right. handle it goes by. And it's really changed in, in very radical ways the, the, the course of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, and radically changed a lot of gay men's sex lives, or in some would argue returned them to the to the 1970s in some ways, because uh, it made it possible for people to safely, when it c- comes to HIV, have sex without condoms. PrEP offers no protection against gonorrhea or syphilis or other sexually transmitted infections, but it is highly effective when taken correctly against HIV, preventing HIV infection. You, you got that exactly right. And it's not just gay men. It's you know, um, women and men in sub-Saharan Africa and, and across the world. It's it's broadly effective in a variety of populations. It works against um, injection drug exposures, sexual exposures. So you're right. It's really transformed the epidemic. And in, in places in the world where it's been made widely available at little or no cost, it's had really demonstrable effects on HIV rates. Um, so it, it's really profoundly effective. But there are certain populations and groups that have struggled with with using it in the most uh, effective way. And so we're constantly looking for something, what's the next best thing, what's newer, what's better. And and the results that we have now um, are for a new new product. Um, It's a medication called Cabotegravir. um, And we studied it in uh, about 4,500 um, gay men and transgender women across the world. And we did a randomized trial comparing um, this injectable version of PrEP, injectable cabotegravir, which is an injection every eight weeks rather than a daily pill. And we compared it to currently approved 
daily oral um, TDF FTC, which is also known as Truvada, which is um, the FDA uh, uh, approved PrEP agent um, for all populations. There, there's an additional um, agent that's approved for some populations just as of last October, which contains similar compounds um, to the to the Truvada medication, but still requires daily oral um, uh, uh, adherence. So, so what's new is right. Rather than having to take a pill every day and be protected, um, we now it looks like we'll have um, something that's a, a, a gluteal muscle or a butt muscle um, injection every um, two months as a, a safe, effective alternative to that. In the the study that we did, it actually was superior compared to the daily oral um, Truvada arm. So uh, we're now preparing to submit it for regulatory approvals, and uh, we're really excited. Is this something you'd have to go to the doctor every eight weeks to have administered? You know, the the thing about you know, you're supposed to see the go to you know go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned every six months, and people space that. Uh, do you think there will be higher compliance rates, or, or, or still some difficulty? You know, the same person who can't remember to take a pill that might save his life or her life every day, is that person going to be able to, you know, to recall exactly when eight weeks have gone by and make the time to show up at the doctor's office to get the injection? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And we don't know yet, right? You know, we've, you know, you could argue that people who participate in clinical trials are particularly motivated, motivated to to show up and and, and, you know, follow up on the study procedures. So we don't yet know how this is going to fit into people's lives, but we can make analogy to um, the, the contraception literature, right? Where women who don't want to get pregnant um, or individuals who don't want to get pregnant, but are of, of childbearing potential, right? You could take a pill every day. You could take an injection every couple of months. You could use a, a vaginal ring. You could have an implant. The more choices that you give someone, the more likely that there's going to be something that's going to fit with their lifestyle and they're going to be able to leverage it and use it effectively for HIV prevention. I think initially this injection is going to have to be administered in doctor's offices, but the hope for the future as we more, you know, understand more about it to be that it could be delivered in pharmacies or at home or by your partner or maybe even by yourself. So lots to learn about the best, best way to, to implement this. But the concept, I think, of removing something you have to remember to do every day and sort of, um, uh, you know, making it um, uh, something that could be done in what's really a directly observed way mm-hmm. um, that you could follow up on more easily is just going to make it more accessible to some people. And, and as you pointed out, it's not, it's not going to be for everyone. Um, I don't think it's going to solve all of the problems um, that we have with HIV prevention, but it's a big step forward. Yeah, that, that does concern me a little bit uh, just because, you know, project yourself well before the pandemic and we're all at home all the time. Project yourself eight weeks into the future in, under normal circumstances. And sometimes, you know, emergency takes you out of town or you plan a quick trip and you space you, – something you you miss an appointment or you forget to make that appointment and then if you're you know getting the ejection every 8 weeks but then every once in a while every 10 or 12 weeks how much of a problem do you think that could end up being yeah so we don't know the answer to how late you can be and still have protection um yet that's one of obviously the the critical questions but what's a nice thing about this is now it's adding an additional tool to our toolbox. So let's say you're going out of town and you think you're going to miss your infection. You could transition to the daily pill version of PrEP 
um, and go on that if you're going to be out of town to bridge you until you come back and get in back on the injection schedule if, if you're not sure how you're going to be away. It does require some advanced planning, mm-hmm. so it's, it's not seamless and perfect. Um, but, you know, short of uh, a completely protective vaccine, um, this, you know, I think this is sort of the next best thing. So where can people who want to read more about this study find it or read the study itself find it? Yeah, so um, we're on the clinicaltrials.gov site right now. We're working on um, a manuscript that's going to um, summarize all of these results. So you'll be able to see it in the medical journal near you soon. Um, we did present these results at the AIDS 2020 conference, um, which was a remote conference, although based out of San Francisco um, in July. And you can find more information on their website there. Dr. Raphael Landovitz, Professor of Medicine, the UCLA, co-director of the UCLA Center for Clinical AIDS Research and Education. I want to thank you for coming on and talking. I also want to thank you for, for catching me when I described PrEP as something that was just a concern for gay men. I think gay men of my generation when it comes to HIV AIDS can be a little myopic about this. And of course, PrEP is for more than just gay men who are concerned about HIV infection. Thank you for coming on. No, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 31-year-old cis female bi woman living in the South. I'm somewhere between average and attractive, depending on who you ask, I suppose. So it's not necessarily difficult for me to get guys. And of course, as we all know, dick is abundant and of low value. However, I've just always really had this fantasy of hiring a male sex worker or hell, two would be great if they agreed to it. I think maybe part of it is the little power trip it would give me as well as just a new experience and I don't know I don't know why I just I just think it'd be great uh when the pandemic is over and I come out of quarantine and just order up a couple guys I think it just the thought tickles me but I think male sex workers are a lot less common am I am I right about that or am I is that just what pop culture is telling me I haven't had any luck trying to find something like that. I I don't even know where to start looking for a male sex worker or, you know, know how to do it safely, stuff like that. So I was wondering if you or your listeners could offer me any sort of advice on hiring uh, specifically a male sex worker. Male sex workers are less common. It's a demand thing. There are way more paying customers out there who are straight men than who are women or gay men. Why is that? There are more women in the world than men in the world. you think there would be potentially as large a market for male sex workers as for female sex workers. But like you said, dick is abundant and it is cheap and pussy is more abundant than dick technically, but scarcer, harder to come by, harder to come And I think it has something to do with how it's riskier for a woman to be sexually free, sexually impulsive, to be out there. Also that women are socialized to be less entitled or feel less entitled to sex than men are socialized. And maybe there are some biological factors at play too. Men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Men churn up a lot of cum and they want to blow those loads. And I think it's a better world when men are – milked regularly and and most of the male sex workers who are out there doing that kind of work are doing it for 
other men because men will pay for sex. That doesn't mean – gay men will pay for sex. That doesn't mean that all male sex workers are gay. Many are bi and many are straight. They're gay for pay. They're just heteroflexible enough to have sex with other men or I guess they would have to be counted as Cirque du Soleil style, extremely heteroflexible if they're out there having sex with other men. But that's where women who are seeking male sex workers – have an in. A lot of the male sex workers who have ads on platforms uh, on the internet that still exist despite FOSTA-SESTA are straight, but they're marketing themselves to men exclusively. And there are a lot of male sex workers who have a presence on Twitter, as a lot of female sex workers have presences on Twitter, and they would appear to be marketing themselves to men exclusively there as well. But a lot of them are straight, a lot of them are bi, and they welcome clients who are women. They just don't actively market themselves to female clients because they don't see that many female clients because it seems like a wasted effort to market themselves to female clients. So that's where you start. You contact male sex workers through those websites. You contact them on Twitter. You ask them if they see female clients. And if they don't, you ask them if they can refer you to a sex worker that they might know who does. And I welcome advice from other women who may be listening who've hired male sex workers who'd like to, to share with the caller and we'll play your response calls on an upcoming show. I would encourage you to put safety first and the best way to put safety first when you're talking about hiring a sex worker is I think to look for someone who has a presence on the internet, who has a dedicated client base uh, and talks about it. I think the best sex workers, if you're interested in hiring someone who's doing the work consensually and doing the work professionally and joyfully, is to find someone who's active in the sex workers' rights movement. And many sex workers are and sex workers who are active in the sex workers' rights movement tend to have profiles and a presence again on Twitter. So that is where if I were you, I would start and like you, I would wait until after COVID to start. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man living on the West Coast. My boyfriend and I have been dating for about seven months now, and everything's been going really well, and it's honestly an amazing relationship, and and uh, we are really healthy communicators. But one of our roommates had to, my roommates had to move out about four months ago, maybe. And so when we were looking for a new roommate, there was, um, you know, several gay men, because we put our posting out on queer housing groups in our area and that were applying and my boyfriend got kind of really jealous. I mean, it's really the only way to describe it and was jealous of these potential roommates and we had to have a lot of conversations about it, but it turned out okay. And he realized, or well, he seemed to realize that it wasn't an issue and that he could trust me. Um, fast forward four months and our roommate that moved in has to move out again. Uh, has to move out now for various reasons, but we have to look for another roommate. So now I'm in this process again, and we've had the most success on those, you know, kind of those queer groups. And I had a guy, I tried to show him that uh, the guy that one of the guys that had responded to us, actually the only one, and he's, you know, an attractive fellow gay man. And again, the same response, like just really jealous and, and, he will concede after being upset for a while that there's just some, there's trust issues that I guess he has to work through. But I've shown him and I try to explain to him or, or uh, that, you know, he has reasons to trust me. I've never really given him any reason to think that I would do anything 
to betray his trust. And he admits this, but he still says that this is like difficult for him. So I really just don't know what to do. And actually, I feel, tell him this, that I feel personally a little hurt that he would think that I would just blow, you know, everything that we've sort of been building over the last seven months down the drain because I have a, you know, an attractive gay roommate. So I just really don't know how to respond. And it's like one of the only things like we've ever fought and fought about. And so what's your advice, Dan? I'm going to contradict myself just a bit here because I don't think jealousy This kind of jealousy that manifests seven months in or earlier in a relationship should be tolerated. But I do think to have a committed romantic relationship, you do have to tolerate and show tolerance for and you can ask for tolerance of insecurities. And your boyfriend that you say you have this amazing relationship with and it's healthy and you can communicate is obviously insecure and you say you've done nothing to make him feel insecure and where my mind goes is what if you had done something to make him feel insecure? What if you were genuinely attracted to this roommate? What if you got a crush on this roommate? That happens to people in long-term relationships and seven months isn't I think long, long-term yet. But over the course of an open-ended theoretically because you're young, multi-decade relationship, a day will come when you are attracted to a coworker into a barista, you've got a crush on a roommate and that is something that you do need to be able to accommodate in the relationship. That's something that the two of you together should be able to acknowledge and handle. Where loyalty comes in is whether or not you act on that attraction, not whether or not you experience it. You will be attracted to other people, roommates and non-roommates, your boyfriend, will be attracted to other people. And in my experience and many people's experiences, someone who is jealous is often projecting their own shit onto their partner. He's worried about what it might mean if you were attracted to your roommate because he knows what it means when he's attracted to somebody else. Not that he's cheating on you or has cheated on you, but he recognizes in himself his capacity potentially to act on an attraction to someone else despite his feelings, and you're still in the honeymoon phase, hopefully at seven months, despite his feelings for you. You need to say that to him. You need to confront him about that. You need to draw a line in the sand where you say, I understand you're insecure about this. I will do nothing to sandpaper your insecurities, but I will not tolerate being yelled at, screamed at. I will not tolerate having to have fights about this for the rest of our lives if we stay together for the rest of our lives. This is something that I will be cognizant of, I will be aware of, but that you need to handle or it will destroy our relationship. And that's the irony often for the jealous type. They make themselves so unpleasant, blowing up, instigating fights about whether you're attracted to somebody else that it makes them less attractive. It makes you want to fuck other people. It makes you want to leave them. Oh, I'm so worried you're going to leave me for somebody else. And they blow up at you about that constantly. They police your behavior. They look at the tip you gave the barista and wonder what it means. Or whether you wrote your number on that dollar bill when you should have left 50 cents. I literally had a boyfriend say that to me once. I was over tipping and it was because I was clearly trying to signal to the waiter that I wanted him. And I was over tipping because I used to wait tables and I know how awful that job is, particularly when you had to wait on people like my ex-boyfriend. 
And in the end, the jealous person gets what they want, I think, which is the confirmation that you are a terrible person, that the person that they were dating was awful because they left them. And they didn't leave them because, you know, they were terrible. They left them because they were sick of it. But in the jealous person's mind, they would rather have the confirmation that you were the terrible person they suspected you might be than to have you long-term in their lives. Now, I'm not gaming out what's going to happen in this relationship, what's going to happen for you, caller. I'm just sharing my own personal experience with this kind of shit, which may have created in me a bias. But when I tolerated jealousy, when I tried to tiptoe around it, when I began walking on eggshells all the time because I was afraid of setting my boyfriend off, I was miserable. In the end, all of that was not worth it. It also wasn't good for that guy because he needed – and he ultimately did in the end get over his jealousy. He needed to get a handle on it and because I was tiptoeing around it, because I wasn't confronting him about it, he didn't for a long time. Again, in the end, he ultimately did and I'm glad for him but it made it impossible for us to be together. All right. So that was a long digression. Caller, you need to say to your boyfriend – are you going to buy me an apartment? This is the only guy who responded to the roommate ad. He's hot. Maybe we could have a three-way with him in a year or two if we get to the point where we want to open up the relationship. But you're just going to have to deal with the fact that I have a hot roommate and you're going to have to trust me. Or you're going to have to buy me an apartment. But then I were you. You know what I would add at the end? Nothing makes me want to fuck my hot roommate more than being with a guy who's giving me grief about wanting to fuck my hot roommate. So if you don't want me to fuck my hot roommate, shut the fuck up about my hot roommate and trust me. Trust me that I won't or trust me that if I ever do, you will be fucking my hot roommate too at the same time at the other end. Hi, Dan. I'm a 17-year-old bisexual girl and about a month ago, I lost my virginity, which is exciting in itself, but – um. I had a bit some questions afterwards because it didn't exactly go so well. I mean, I like that it was a bit sloppy. It was kind of cute and I didn't mind that it wasn't all perfect. But um, I got really wet. <laughs> he said he had jerked off a little bit beforehand so that he would last longer, but he was rather um, squishy. <laughs> so it just kept sliding around for 20 minutes and we couldn't exactly get it in. So I don't know if there's something I can do to prevent this in the future or something I can have my partner do. But yeah, I just wanted a little bit of help because it was fun, but getting it all down to it was a bit embarrassing. So yeah, thank you. Well, congrats. Congrats on losing your virginity. Virginity is a patriarchal concept. It's also not a singular event. People talk about their V card, their virginity card. I've always encouraged people to think about a V deck. You have many V cards that you can play, many experiences that you can have over the course of your sexual life. You've got the vaginal intercourse card. You've got the oral sex card, the outer course card, the kink card. There are so many different kink cards and on and on and on. But congrats. You had your first partnered sexual experience, which is a long and complicated way that some people are more comfortable with of saying you lost your virginity and you got super wet. That's a really good sign. That means that you were very aroused. You had, as they say, a wet ass pussy and that is good. He was squishy. He was obviously nervous. That sometimes happens. 
You say he slid around. And what can you do in the future if you're with somebody who has a penis that you want to get erect and you'd like to have in your vaginal canal because you would like to have penetrative vaginal sex? I hope you are using birth control. I hope you are using condoms in addition to birth control. And I hope you have some plan B, some morning after pills tucked away in a medicine cabinet somewhere so that if a condom fails, if condoms are your only birth control method, that you have a backup plan. You have, again, a plan B. But what can you do if the next time you get with this guy or some other guy, some other penis haver, he's squishy? Well, if he's squishy, he's probably nervous. If he wants to be there, if when you were making out, you could feel his erection through his clothes and then when you got naked and the moment came for penetrative intercourse and he suddenly went soft or putting the condom on and going soft, he's got performance anxiety. The pressure is getting to his dick. So the best thing to do at that moment when the pressure is getting to a guy's dick is to take the pressure off the guy and take the pressure off that guy's dick. There are so many great and fun things that you can do to get off together, to enjoy each other, to feel physically close, to be in contact that don't require a hard penis or don't require penetrative sex if he's just freaking out about that and nervous about that or if he's concerned about pregnancy, which some guys, to their credit, are. Mutual masturbation, oral sex, continuing to roll around outer course, which if he was just slipping and sliding his penis around your labia, if he wasn't inside your vaginal canal, congratulations, you lost your outer course V card. That's outer course. You can enjoy all of those things. And if you say to a guy, we don't have to have PIV, we don't have to have vaginal intercourse to have fun, we don't have to have vaginal intercourse to get off. Also good strategy when you're young to, I think, wait for penetrative sex, to get comfortable with someone if they're going to be a regular sex partner, to masturbate together, to, to enjoy oral sex, to enjoy some frottage, some outer course, some rubbing against each other, show each other that you can turn each other on, that your pussy's super wet, that his dick is super hard. And that helps the guy sometimes. If he's gotten off, if he's gotten hard and climaxed with somebody who's a new partner, if he's young and nervous a few times before you attempt penetrative sex, he knows that you know that his dick works and that can help to alleviate his performance anxiety if indeed you get with this same guy again. Congrats. Congrats on losing one of your V-cards. Sounds like you lost the outer course V-card. Congrats on your wet-ass pussy and congrats on you. You sound like a very self-possessed, wise and confident individual beginning her partnered sexual life and it was really great to get your call. Before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. A listener whose Twitter handle is NJAzWrites tweeted out, I distinctly remember at Fake Dan Savage saying that one day the coronavirus will find Trump and hot damn Dan, you were right. Hoping karma is every bit the bitch we need and deserve her to be. Did I say that? I say a lot of things. I run my mouth into this mic for a living and I don't specifically recall saying that, but that doesn't mean I didn't and I kind of hope I did say that. And hey, remember all those fuck your feelings t-shirts Trumpers have been wearing at their rallies for the last four years? Because when their glorious leader says something that upsets decent people everywhere, when he says something racist or sexist or Islamophobic or straight up fascistic, something that a feeling person might object to, it's all fuck your feelings. That's what those t-shirts were about. And then COVID came along and they didn't feel like it was a big deal. They felt like it wasn't any worse than the flu. They felt like it would be over. When summer came along, yeah, 
Well, turns out the virus was wearing one of those fuck your feelings t-shirts too. Ruthie Griffith tweets at fake Dan Savage mispronouncing Megan the Stallion as Megan three Stallion on this week's Savage Lovecast was the giggle I needed on my morning commute. Thank you to everyone who tweeted at me about that. What can I say? I am embarrassed and I am old or now I am. I wasn't always old. And here's the thing about famous people and aging. When you're 12 or 13 and you first become aware of fame and famous people, everyone who's famous at that moment is already famous. And for a little bit, the number of famous people seems stable. And then someone else suddenly gets famous and then somebody else gets famous and somebody else. The cast of Full House crowds into the same part of your brain where you'd already stored the cast of Gilligan's Island and Bewitched and Love Boat and Charlie's Angels. And then along comes Friends and The Sopranos and Lost and Game of Thrones and Killing Eve and those are just TV actors. You've also got to make room in your brain for famous new singers and famous new movie stars, YouTube stars, TikTok stars, reality show stars, porn stars. Eventually you can't keep up anymore. There's not enough room. There are just too many famous people to cram into your brain, too many names to remember. And it's going to happen to you too. Just like my grandfather called them the Bowling Stones and my mom called David Letterman, David Mailman, and I called Megan the Stallion, Megan three Stallion, one day you will start getting the newly famous people's names out there wrong too. And finally, Katya tweets, I hope my mom's Mormon neighbors are ready to listen to at fake Dan Savage's love cast for the next week. Thanks for cranking the volume up, Katya, for the Mormon neighbors. And if your mom's Mormon neighbors are listening and can hear my voice right now, I hope you're enjoying the Savage Lovecast. Okay, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. We appreciate everybody who tweets about the show or posts to Instagram about the show, helps get the word out. And now your response calls. Hi, I'm calling in response to the caller who mentioned they were worried about or contemplating how um, men in straight relationships might not receive their partners being guys that well. And I want to say they do. I mean, at least for me, I came out about two months ago during quarantine and um, have started transitioning and it's been enthusiastically accepted. And it turns out my boyfriend is very bisexual. So Odds are, if someone's attracted to you and your masculine energy that you already kind of have, they're probably a little bi and it'll be okay. And they'll probably be cool with it. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the man who got reamed in the bathroom and now might have fissures. I suffered from fissures for three years. I used all the goops from the doctors, the steroid creams. They give you headaches or, you know, be cautious about using them. I finally found an article in the National Institute of Health about doing self-massage for fissures, where you put some lube on your finger, stick in your ass, get past the little bit of stinging that happens, and leave it in there long enough that your sphincter relaxes, which allows the blood to flow, which is why it doesn't heal, because it's hard to get blood there. And doing this and putting some Neosporin cream on my ass, I am now healed. I am back to getting reamed properly, and I can't recommend it enough for those who have Fissures that just won't go away. Hi, this is a comment for the caller who was talking about his mother forwarding or reposting the the comment on Facebook from the most recent episode. And I would just like to highly encourage you not to lead with calling your mother a racist 
or if from like an attack kind of stance. Um, I agree with everything Dan said and I'm totally, you know, in the ballpark of talking about racial justice and, and um, having those hard conversations. But there, if she is at a place where you could actually have a real conversation with her and you feel like she's going to be open about it, you really got to meet her where she is to start, even though it's really a challenging thing to do. And I know that it sucks, <laughs> but if you can really listen to where she is starting from and meet her where she is, you're going to have a much more successful conversation with her. And that's the kind of conversations we need to be having right now with people that are willing to have them. I'm not talking about you know, the really intense racists who just are um, not going to listen. But but in this case, it might be someone you can really get through to. So we encourage you to have that conversation. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to send us a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. You can also use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You have one more chance to watch the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival online this Saturday, October 10th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets. And this is the year to make your own film for Hump. It's easy and fun, and you can win big cash prizes. Submissions for the 16th Annual Hump Film Festival, which kicks off in 2021, are due December 4th. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how to make and submit your Hump film. And just in time for the spooky season, the producers of Hump are launching a new scary short film festival. Slay Film Fest starts on October 15th and runs through Halloween with two volumes of over 30 horror films from all around the world. Go to slayfilmfest.com to get tickets and watch the trailer. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Megan the Stallion on Twitter at the with two E's Stallion. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the techs have at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Wear a mask, be well, and vote. Vote. We have a month. Please vote. Vote early, but not as the president has suggested often. Just early. Talk to you next week.